Today we're discussing the last chapter in Petina's textbook, chapter five. In this chapter, Petina provides us with an assessment of the situation in Central America during what would be the tail end of the Cold War. El Salvador, Nicaragua, and Guatemala together will see more bloodshed and violence in this period than any other country in Latin America. Petimana makes a clear case for the local and global causes to these conflicts. The origin of the issues is local, but domestic politics in the U.S. will have an impact on the global political equilibrium, which will impact these three countries locally. Lastly, he also brings a new element into the game, oil. It is because of its recently discovered oil reserves and the wealth that came with this that Mexico and other Latin American oil exporting countries could play the role they played in helping solve or try to solve the Nicaraguan Civil War and support the Sandinista government in the aftermath of the war's confrontations. This chapter articulates that nothing is as simple as blaming the US or the CIA or one dictator or particular military general. In this case, it also suggests that power and capital or oil are impossible to separate to understand what happened in the region. In the 1970s and the 1980s, the military regimes of Central America faced increasing opposition from armed rebels. Decades worth of poverty, of electoral abuse, and of power mongering among very small groups of elites, combined with a broader communication network that connected citizens to, of these countries to examples of alternatives, generated sometimes violent reactions to the authoritarian rule they were subjected to. Guatemala was in its third decade of civil war with no end in sight. Nicaragua was in the fourth decade of the rule of the Somoza family. One Somoza or another had ruled in Nicaragua since 1930, with all the attendant corruption that goes with long-term rule. And El Salvador's army was increasingly being deployed against peasants and leftist uprisings that reflected the extreme entrenched privilege of the elites in the region. While these countries were in constant turmoil, Costa Rica, on the other hand, remained a model of democracy and peace giving it the legitimacy to finally be able to broker the Esquipulas Peace Accord in 1986 to try and end the violence in the region. But before we get there, the legacy of the 19th century has to be made explicit in this context. The conflicts in Central America had long simmered because of the weakness of the representative institutions in Central America. The strength of local and regional leaders combined with patronate networks meant that violent dictatorial leaders stayed in power. If you want to understand the U.S. involvement in the Central American Wars, you have to contend with both the four-year Carter presidency, which wanted to replace the American presence with something more focused on humanitarian aid rather than anti-communist support, on the one hand, and on the other hand, the continued concern within the State Department and the intelligence community with Soviet influence in this part of the world. The spark to the Nicaraguan conflict was the January 1978 assassination of Pedro Joaquin Chamorro, the editor of an important newspaper in Nicaragua and a big opponent of Somoza and his regime. The assassination was planned and ordered by members of the highest echelons of the Somoza regime, and it included the dictator's son. Many countries, including Mexico and the U.S., had already withdrawn their support from the ruling Somozas, and this galvanized support for the Sandinistas. Chamorro's murder was the last straw in the fragile support for the dictator. In 1979, and under mounting pressure from Sandinistas, who were winning an increasing number of cities over, Somoza resigned and fled to Miami. But the U.S. did not grant him an exile visa, so he had to eventually exile himself to Paraguay. The Sandinistas overthrew the rest of Somoza's political dynasty relatively quickly, and like Fidel Castro, they took government over. This was under Carter. When Ronald Reagan won the presidential election in late 1980, that Sandinista victory would soon become the beginning of a protracted civil war between anti-communist guerrillas, the Contras, as they were called, that were funded covertly by the U.S., and the Sandinista, which essentially were the official army. 
it would be a really bloody conflict. In the rest of the region, in Guatemala, the civil war had begun soon after Arbenz's overthrow, and from approximately 1960 to 1996, each change in government between, on the one hand, the army, and on the other hand, sort of elites that were not military, generated new violence, all the while oppressing any opposition to whoever was in power. The indigenous Quiche were always the target of the attacks, and they were always under suspicion that they'd cooperate with, or might offer aid, to anti-government guerrillas. Entire villages were leveled to help counter insurgency efforts. Countless peasants were forcibly relocated, no matter who was in power. The situation only got worse in 1980 after Reagan became president. The Guatemalan official army was seen as the necessary bolster against communism, and that communism was essentially kind of located amongst anybody who opposed the army and the military government. In the early 80s, the U.S. ambassador to Guatemala, Frederick Chapin, announced that the killings have stopped. The Guatemalan government has come out of the darkness and into the light. In fact, the reality was very different. The number of civilians killed by death squads at the time was roughly 220 people a month. In a secret report to his superiors in 1983, Chapin decried the horrible human rights realities in Guatemala and argued that a consistent policy demanded that either the United States, and I quote, overlook the record and emphasize the strategic concept, or we can pursue a higher moral path. This is 1983. The Reagan administration chose to overlook what was going on in order to support that strategic concept. It wanted to push back communists, and so it avoided that higher moral path. The Contadora group efforts were geared at moving the conflict before, beyond the bipolar machinations that were so uh, sort of obsessing Reagan. It tried to find a way towards peace peace between the factions that did not engage either superpower. For the Contadora group, the Central American civil wars were humanitarian crisis, not just because of the level of the killings, because the migration flows it provoked into their countries. In El Salvador, after the overthrow of President Romero in 1980, who, by the way, had no relation to the Salvadoran archbishop, and for the next 12 years, the civilian population in disputed or guerrilla-controlled areas was automatically assumed to be the enemy which led to massacres such as the ones at El Mosote and the Supul River in early 1980. Both sides of the conflict behaved likewise, justifying their actions as acts of war because they claimed the victims had obstructed the delivery of supplies to combatants or simply because they were in the way. If, if everyone is either on your side or fighting against you, then any act you commit is an act of war. This isn't a justification, it's an excuse. During the war, US military advisors helped train government forces. And in the meantime, the guerrillas of the Frente Farabundo Martí de Liberación Nacional were trained and funded by Cuban advisors and the Sandinistas in Nicaragua, as well as supported by several Eastern European countries and the USSR itself, creating one of the last scenarios of the Cold War in Central America. In El Salvador, the US, the USSR by Cuba, were supporting caste. They help both sides. And to be sure, the existence of the conflict between the US and the USSR creates a tension and a context for the conflict. But the long history of unresolved conflict in the area has always made me wonder just how different things might have been, or if it would have all, in a sense, devolved to this anyway. In Honduras in the 1980s, the United States established a continuing military presence with the purpose of supporting the anti-Sandinista Contras fighting the Nicaraguan government and, in a sense, also getting involved in El Salvador. 
Under Reagan, the U.S. built airstrips long enough to land cargo planes, a training base that primarily trained Contras and the El Salvadoran military. Honduras had reverted to civilian rule in 1979 under Carter, or at least while Carter was president of the U.S., and during the Reagan years, it became a key region of local investment in exchange for helping Contra forces. Honduras was spared the bloody civil wars of its neighbors, perhaps because it had reverted to civilian rule in, in the late 70s, but being such close allies to the U.S. allowed the Honduran army to quietly wage a campaign against Marxist-Leninist militias in Honduras, such as the Cinchoneros Popular Liberation Movement. It, you know, I mean, it was a liberation movement that was notorious for kidnappings and bombings, so perhaps there were motives, there were good motives to try to control them, but whatever the motives, the Honduran army tactics were not always the most legal. And because the United States was focused on strategic gold, goals, they knew they were not going to be concerned with what methods they used. American development aid allowed ambitious social and economic development projects, and Honduras became the host to the largest Peace Corps mission in the world. Non-governmental and international voluntary agents proliferated in Honduras, with many Americans and people from other countries eager to help and fulfill the humanitarian mission that President Carter had proposed. At the same time, there were U.S.-funded guerrillas being funded across the border. The arm that funded educational and health care on one side and the one that trained militias were both part of the same American body, part of a continuum of U.S. involvement, both positive and negative. Under Reagan, the last hot, and by that really sort of armed, active engagement by the U.S., right, not covert hiding behind others in the Cold War, would also be in Latin America. In October 1983, the U.S. launched the first overt invasion of a foreign country to overthrow a communist leader. This happened in the small island of Granada. If you look at a map, Granada is a small Caribbean island a few miles off the coast of Venezuela. In geographic terms, it's Latin America, but it was never a Spanish colony, and it was first a French colony and then an English colony until its independence in 1974. The reason for the evasion was the rise of an openly communist government in Granada. The government had been in power since 1979. Again, this election of a communist had happened while Carter was in office. After a bloodless coup d'etat by Maurice Bishop, who established a Marxist-Leninist government that quickly aligned itself with the Soviet Union and Cuba. Under Bishop, Granada began a military buildup of significant proportions, and especially significant for a country that had previously maintained a tiny, small army and that a country that was itself very small. The government also began building an international airport with the help of, of Cuba, and in here I think that Cuba really stands for the Soviet Union. Ronald Reagan would point to this airport and several other sites as evidence of the potential threat posed by Grenada towards the United States and the, towards the United States. And the U.S. would accuse Grenada of building facilities to aid Soviet-Cuban military buildup in the Caribbean, and that, that this would assist Soviet and Cuban transport and trans and in, of weapons to Central American insurgents, which the United States was actively fighting um, in as well. So in October, on October 13th, 1983, a faction led by Deputy Prime Minister Bernard Cord seized power from Bishop and then executed him in spite of mass protests in Bishop's favor. The uncertainty and the violence that this provoked was the trigger for the U.S. involvement. So it wasn't the communist government. It was the uncertainty, the violence. U.S. officials cited the coup and general political instability in a country near its own borders, as well as the presence of American medical students at St. George's University on the island of Grenada 
as reasons for military action. These were all probably excuses. The invasion was a necessary one in light of Reagan's fight against communism everywhere, especially in Central America. It was also relatively risk-free exercise in muscle flexing, which Reagan was want to do, both the muscle flexing, but also was, uh, you know, the, the fact that it was risk-free was, was important. In many aspects of his relationship with the Soviet Union, Reagan wanted to make it clear to the Soviet Union that the U.S. would not stop in its fight to end the Soviet regime. And in hindsight, this tactic may not have been completely insane. By the 1980s, the Soviet Union was starting to crumble under the twin pressures of economic decline and decay and political atrophy. A centralized system really put a lot of pressure on the state to solve economic, social, political problems that were increasingly beyond its ability to solve. So if we understand the US strategy as one that was intended to break the Soviet Union, then we can understand its attitude towards Latin America. From the perspective of Latin Americans, of course, it didn't feel so great, but it was well understood that the United States' play in the area was a consequence of its primary goal, and all else was rhetorical. It's not that the Reagan administration was blind to the wrongs committed by military forces it supported, or that it deceived the American public and stubbornly opposed peace, peace in initiatives. It's just that, to Reagan, the strategy was to end the Soviet Union. And everything he did was with that in mind. The Reagan Doctrine was designed to serve the dual purposes of diminishing Soviet influence in Africa, Asia, and Latin America, while potentially opening the door for democracy in nations that were largely being governed by the Soviet-supported dictators. It was the culmination of the National Security Doctrine and Modernization Theory, namely to eliminate the Soviet presence and foster democracy through free markets. The fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989 and the end of the Soviet Union in 1991 set the conditions for peace discussions because in Latin America and everywhere else that had been touched by the Cold War political tensions, well, there ceased to be a necessary location for the confrontation between the two superpowers because there were no more superpowers. At least, there was only one. So one of the questions you need to ask yourselves and try to answer is the issue of alternatives in this context. What else could have happened in light of the domestic U.S. concern. I mean, you can play counterfactuals. What if Reagan had not won against Carter? Could President Carter in his second uh, term in office have left a sort of a leftist regime in Nicaragua? Could he have stood by the probable emergence of one in El Salvador? What would this have meant for those countries, for Nicaragua and for El Salvador? What would it have meant for the region? What would the Contadora group have been if there hadn't been U.S. involvement, but there had been civil wars? And what would the United States policy elsewhere have been? So the question again, as it was when we were looking at Chile, is if the United States had not done anything, would there have been a conflict? Would it have ended sooner? Clearly, many neighboring countries might have intervened in one way or another without the U.S., as the example of the Contadura, Contadora group shows us and as the Condor operation and group did in South America. Right? It, Latin American countries were in concert with each other. As these cases illustrate, intervention can be good. It can be difficult. It can be really, really bad. We can only conjecture as to what a different US or a different USSR or no Cold War would have impacted the countries of Latin America. But seeing it from the perspective of 2023, I have a few thoughts. The Sandinista party headed by Daniel Ortega, who was a major rebel in this 
sort of part of the Sandinista effort in the 70s and 80s, has been in office multiple times in the 21st century. And Daniel Ortega has be increasingly become a really authoritarian president. In February of 2023, right now, the government stripped 94 Nicaraguans of their citizenship. This is the latest move in a long crackdown against dissent and opposition to the Sandinista party in power. The Nicaraguans who are now nationless, they are no long they no longer are Nicaraguans, are amongst them are journalists, literary authors, civil rights activists, there's a former Sandinista rebel commander as well as the auxiliary bishop of Managua, which is Nicaragua's capital. Some of these people who were stripped of their nationality and are not in Nicaragua right now, and they have been declared fugitives. And the fate for those who are in Nicaragua is unclear. But what is clear is that the lines between good guys and bad guys are not what we might have thought of they were, and that the freedom fighters of the 70s and 80s may be becoming the dictators of today. So as we near the end of this book, and we will discuss more on the end of the Cold War and the aftermath for Latin America, when we discuss the epilogue of Petina's book next week.